0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help,
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language, writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today I have some interesting listener comments about my recent show on the word dilemma, a meaty middle about Godzilla, and a familect story about Sharpies. You might remember that a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how I believe I was taught the wrong spelling of the word dilemma in school and that this seems to be a somewhat common belief, although it may not be true. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to episode 686, but I got a couple of especially interesting comments that I thought would be fun to share. The first one is from a listener named Sheldon, who wrote, quote, I was shocked to hear your podcast about Dilemma. I'm sure I was taught to spell it with an N. I'm dyslexic and can't look at a word and get the spelling. The only way I can spell words is if the spelling is obvious or if I've been told a trick to remember how to spell it, or these days by using a spelling checker. I was told that the way to remember how to spell that word was to pronounce the N—dilemna. I've been doing that for almost 60 years now. Dilemna was a word I heard often. My father was always on the horns of a dilemma. I was familiar with that word when I was just a few years old. And, by the way, my father always had a thing with words. As a kid, when we were fighting, he would say, when you bristle with indignation, don't vocalize so enthusiastically. While other fathers would tell their son to take out the garbage, I was told, there is an entity of refuse here, longing for relocation in its indefinite domain, the garbage can. Take it out." Thanks, Sheldon. I really love that last part it reminded me of a cheer we did at my high school at football games. Subdue them! Subdue them! Make them relinquish the ball! I've seen slight modifications of it online, but never that exact chant that we did. And here's another interesting comment from a listener about Dilemma. Julian wrote, I share the same story, but I grew up in France. Apparently, the word is dilemme, and it's spelled with two M's like Dilemma in English but people often misspell it—D-I-L-E-M-N-E—just like our common misspelling in English. And it seems to be a well-documented common misspelling in French. Julian referred me to a Wiktionary page in French which says the misspelling comes from contamination by the word ondem, which means something like unharmed in French and is spelled with an M-N instead of two M's. Julian says there's even a quote by Benjamin Constant, a famous classic French author. I had come across something like this in my research, but since I can't read French, I wasn't sure and didn't include it. So thanks so much for the message, Julian. I found that pretty interesting.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than Golden Retrievers. See you in there. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reasons, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules, only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. In April, Merriam-Webster added the word cryptid to its dictionary, and in May, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, hits theaters. With those two events happening back-to-back, it seemed like a good time to talk about a few monster words and to answer an important question. Is Godzilla a cryptid? Let's start with Godzilla. I'm sure you know who he is. That fictional, dinosaur-like monster who walks on two legs, destroys cities, and breathes not fire, but atomic radiation. He first appeared in the 1954 Japanese movie Gojira. In the movie, he's awakened from a peaceful life beneath the sea when he's dosed with the radiation from an atomic bomb. He destroys the city of Shinagawa and irradiates many of its citizens before finally being destroyed. Just nine years before this movie was made, the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been bombed, closing the final chapter of World War II. Godzilla thus serves as both a symbol of nuclear holocaust and a metaphor for the devastation these bombings caused. By the way, you might have noticed I pronounced the name of the 1954 movie as Gojira, not Godzilla. That's because Godzilla is an anglicized version of the Japanese word Gojira, and Gojira, in turn, is a combination of two other words—Gorira, meaning gorilla, and Kujira, meaning whale. Regular Grammar Girl listeners might recognize this as a portmanteau—words like spork and smog that combine two parts of other words to make something new. Now, when I picture Godzilla, I don't necessarily think, wow, he kind of looks like a gorilla and kind of like a whale, but I can see where the filmmakers were coming from. Gojira was one of the first examples of what's called a tokusatsu kaiju movie. Let me break that down. Tokusatsu is a Japanese word meaning special effects. It tends to refer to live-action movies that were made in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. CGI hadn't yet been invented back then, and special effects were pretty remedial. Think of men wearing monster suits, flying saucers being dangled on a string, and stop-motion monsters made of clay. Kaiju is a Japanese word meaning strange beast in other words, what English speakers would call a monster. Super-powerful kaiju are sometimes called kaiju. The dai prefix refers to their great power or stature. Godzilla would be considered a daikaiju. His colleagues Rodan and Mothra would be too. And by the way, if you've never seen these movies, Rodan looks like a giant pterodactyl. Mothra looks like, I am not making this up, a pretty cute giant moth. Some of the very first depictions of kaiju can be traced all the way back to the third century B.C. They come from a book of Chinese mythology called The Classics of Mountains and Seas, also translated as Guideways Through Mountains and Seas. The kaiju in that book include a turtle with a bird's head and viper's tail, and a goat with nine tails, four ears, and eyes on its back. Let's finish up with the question of whether Godzilla is a cryptid, Cryptids are strange beasts. Yeti, Chupacabra, and the Loch Ness Monster would all fall in that category. But cryptids are creatures that some people actually believe to exist, even though their existence has never been proven. The word cryptid has the root crypto, which comes from an ancient Greek word meaning hidden, concealed, or secret. We can see that root in words like cryptic, meaning mysterious, cryptogram, a message written in code and Cryptarch, a secret ruler. In short, as much as we enjoy seeing Godzilla on the big screen, I don't think any of us believe he actually exists. That means that although he's a kaiju, he is not a cryptid. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as DragonflyEdit. Before we get to our familect story, if you want to know when I have a new webinar available, if you want to get easy links to all the new Grammar Girl articles every week, or you want to see my latest book recommendation, you need to subscribe to my free email newsletter. Just go to quickanddirtytips.com, click the subscribe link at the top, tick the Grammar Girl box, and enter your email address. Then, once a week, you'll get all the latest Grammar Girl links and news. That's the subscribe link at the top of quickanddirtytips.com. And now, here's Sheila.
0: Hi, Grammar Girl. My name is Sheila from California, and I am calling to share my life story. So a few years ago, my dad was getting ready to retire, and he was looking for new hobbies to do with his spare time and decided to give adult coloring books a try. Now, instead of just using the many art supplies we already had in the house, he decided to order $90 worth of Sharpies online. My mom and my sister and I thought this was kind of excessive, but he really just did not think it was a big deal at all. So now my family uses the phrase Sharpie money to describe an amount of money that's somewhat significant in a way that makes it seem smaller than it really is, especially if we're encouraging someone to splurge on something. For example, if my sister wants to go to Disneyland but isn't sure if she wants to spend $130 on a ticket, I might say... Only $130? Come on, that's Sharpie money. Uh, Thanks so much for doing the show. I love it a lot, and I will keep listening. Bye.
1: Thanks, Sheila. I don't know why, but I love that story. If you'd like to share your familect story—the story about a word that your family and only your family uses—you can leave a voicemail at eight three three two one four girl, and be sure to tell me why your family uses the story, because that's always the best part. That's eight three three two one four girl, and you might hear your story on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl and author of seven books, including the New York Times bestseller, Grammar Girl's Quick and Dirty Tips for Better Writing, and thanks to my audio producer, Nathan Sams. This show is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and you can find articles that go with each episode at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening.
0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help,